Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. It's your buddy, Nick. My buddy, Nick. Not my. Not to be confused with <laughs> my buddy, Nick, 89 on Twitter. Listen, I don't know. There's some other my buddy, Nick, out there that took that. Twitter's I gotta... actually like the hardest platform to get usernames on. Like, I actually had my, my Twitter handle when I first started commentating in real estate was WTFOCH. Like what the what the fuck? But then people thought that my last name was pronounced Fox, so I, I was like I, I kind of didn't, didn't didn't do myself any favors with that one. But I can't I still oh, can't that's get good. my first and last name on Twitter. So anyway, what are we talking about? Today, it's man? tough out there, man. Before we get into what we're talking about, I want to take a second here and say a very heartfelt, very sincere thank you to everyone out there supporting us like crazy this is a a, not a brag by any means this is very humbling we are number one in business in canada on apple Podcasts. we are number 15 we hit number 15 today it's friday july 15th in the afternoon of july 15th we've been number one for two days in in business and number 15 between 15 and 25 on the on the charts it's it's amazing man yeah yeah i can't believe it I'm i'm incredibly grateful to have uh a really strong launch and and we're you know a lot of people subscribing a lot of downloads a lot of great feedback so far so keep it coming we love to hear feedback good or bad and we want to learn how to to create as much value as we can for our listeners we want to know what you want to hear about we want to know what topics you want to hear and we want to know how we can make the show better for all of you so please continue to leave us reviews even if they're you know constructive make sure it's a five star but hit me with you know here's what we want you to talk about or can you you know can you explain these things or whatever it is we we like that kind of feedback so thanks yeah, if you don't like the podcast, just DM me and be mean. Don't do it on we'll Apple. Personally, please. tailor Come it on. to make sure that you like it, and then then you can leave a review. <laughs> so yeah, thanks so much, everybody. Let's dive into today. Today we are talking about everything but residential real estate. We're going to be exploring some of the other asset classes that a lot of us that you know are are interested in investing in real estate or already investing in real estate don't really get too much exposure to, you know? And Dan, what, what are we going to talk about? What, what, what other asset classes? Yeah, so I think we're going to discuss commercial assets. So office, retail, industrial. We might get into land if we have time towards the end of the episode. Although I do, you know, I, I typically don't advise beginner investors to be buying land unless you're a farmer experienced with agriculture to be buying just raw land or raw development land. You should be buying covered land, so land that you can have yield. And so in most cases, it's land with, an improvement on it, a house or an industrial building or a retail building or an office building. So the land element kind of gets covered in a lot of these. You know, like one could argue that most retail plazas in the greater Toronto area are future development sites. Most, you know, like I would say most of them exist within a suburban secondary plan. So they're all future high rise sites, as an example. Even houses that are located on major arterial roads are, you know, development sites in quotation marks. So raw land is for people who really, really are in the business of development. So anyway, there we go. Already touched on raw land. So we're going to be looking at the rest of the asset classes from a bird's eye view. And what we're going to be doing is kind of comparing them to residential, using residential as the benchmark, because I feel like it's something we can all understand and relate to. You know, it feels familiar and manageable. In most cases, it's probably 
the place where most people start their investing career, whether you buy in a condo, a single family home, a multifamily. We've all lived in condos. We've all lived in single family homes. Maybe some of us have lived in duplexes, rented a basement. Maybe some of us grew up in a family where there was another dwelling in the home. So, you know, I think that is a good place to start. And I think it's a very relatable thing. Now, at the same time, could you picture yourself owning a small warehouse, maybe a small commercial space that you, you know, a doctor's office or or a chiropractor in there, maybe even a car wash or a storage facility. So today we're going to be looking at some of those other asset classes. This is going to be a high level bird's eye view of just a quick risk reward. We're going to be looking at a few key metrics and that is vacancy rates, price growth, and cap rates. And again, relating them back to residential, which we all understand. And we're going to be looking at that from a small and medium cap investor. So Dan, give us a quick example of what you personally will consider a small medium cap investor. Yeah. So I basically just try and use the ideas that they, that people would use in stock market analysis. They use billions in, in stock. So a small cap company would be, I think it's like 300 million to 2 billion. So I would say your small cap real estate investor is somebody who's spending, let's say 300 thousand to two million. And then I think your mid cap is two to 10 billion. And that would be what I would say a 2 million to 10 million is sort of your mid cap real estate investor. And then 10 million plus would sort of be your large cap real estate investor. And you know, in the stock markets, it's 10 billion plus is sort of your large cap stocks. A couple of things, you know, worth mentioning, I do want to try and touch on commercial real estate relatively often in this because I do think that it's an underreported opportunity for Canadians to invest in in real estate because we do have this obsession with housing in the country. And I want to be full scope and I want to explore the good opportunities because some of the things we're going to touch on today is you'll find in a lot of markets across Canada, you can buy a commercial unit as an example, a commercial condo potentially where you know it's much less maintenance than a detached home or even a you know a semi-detached or condominium unit. It's a much cleaner relationship, tenant relationship. It doesn't require as thick of skin. It's not as personal. It's more of a business transaction. And so sort of outlining some of those those positive aspects. But the other element is, you know, you can get a better rate of return in a lot of cases in this, for, for assets in the same sort of price range within the same municipality. Most people just don't think about buying commercial. And there's a number of reasons why, which we'll get into. But I don't want to digress from... The scheduling that you have going on so you know <laughs> call me out in front of everyone like that well Come i like you're my you're my you're the boss here man you keep me regimented i uh, i like to get tangential and that's not always the best way to go <laughs> as i quickly google what that word means so on that note let's start with commercial and i think you know, I, full disclosure, I did start my career off in, in commercial real estate. I was never a licensed broker. I was doing business development. So I do have a pretty good idea, but you transacted in commercial real estate for a little while. So I feel, and, and a lot of your clients and, and some of your investors, you're still putting these deals together, correct? Yeah. So, I mean, the commercial has been a little bit different for the past little bit. It, it was one of the asset classes that really changed as a result of COVID, right? You know, big changes in in vacancy, big changes in the way that people are even using spaces. A lot of turnovers, obviously, in the restaurant and retail spaces due to to lockdowns and, and a lot of other you know difficulties with COVID and and the retail environment. On the office side, 
similar phenomena existing, right? We're seeing an uncertainty around whether or not we're going to see the central business district opening in a meaningful way like it did before, right? If you look at the SRRA, so Strategic Reporting and Research Alliance, which is a downtown Toronto entity, basically aggregates data from all of these different landlords and applies almost mobility trends like scanners of people going through the doors, etc., the Toronto core is actually running at 26% of its pre-COVID occupancy right now. And, you know, office wow. vacancy rates are somewhere between like 9 and 12%, I think. And so so when you say when you say vacancy, am I understanding that the tenants are all still in their paying rent or do we actually have tenants is there actually like major floor like floor plans and like several floors missing yeah so the term vacancy rate it's tough because they do get conflated a lot because you know reporting agencies who are who are looking at actual mobility data like that's like the human occupancy we'll use similar terms because they're very literal terms right so but the vacancy rate the commercial or if we say office fundamentals, you know, the vacancy rate. I think it's grown from, you know, something like 12% in 2021 to 13%. This is nationally, right? 12 to 13% in tw- in we're at now Q2 2022. But interestingly, you know, the the price, uh the rent that they're commanding is actually growing as well, right? So a lot of, you know, potential landlords are using these turnovers as opportunities to to boost rents and also, I mean, we're in an inflationary environment, right? So almost all business inputs are going up in value and and rent in a lot of cases is one of them, especially for offices. So before we move on, I just want to unpack something you said there. So landlords on, on a large commercial scale are taking this opportunity with tenants either moving out or or barely using the space. They're taking that opportunity to go in there and do what I believe is called either tenant improvements or they're just going in and improving that floor plan by themselves. Very similar to what you and I and any other smart investor would do anytime a residential tenant leaves, correct? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that, obviously, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds. But yeah, like there's different ways that the relationships sort of function between the landlord and tenant and who takes on a lot of those leaseholds and improvements. But yeah, typically landlords are operating very, you know, large scale institutional landlords are operating very similarly to these strategies are. You know they're they're time tested and true. They're fail saves. They're evergreen for all real estate investors. You know when you have the opportunity to you have market turnover, you use that to capitalize and make your product better, and bring a better offering to the market so you can command higher price and recapitalize in those losses that you just experienced from you know an increasing vacancy. So on the office side, I think maybe I'll just go through like on the I think you mentioned cap rate. So we'll go through quickly. We use caps basically to get an understanding for your rate of return. So for those of you who are joining us from the Canadian Investor Podcast. It's almost like your price to earnings ratio, right? It's it's a simple rate of return. It's a napkin math calculation. It's basically the net operating income of an asset divided by the purchase price of that asset. So you can use it for an individual asset to say, oh, we purchased this asset at a 4% cap rate, or you can use it to measure the rate of return that an investor can expect in a broad market, right? So you know that certain stocks are trading at uh, a one or a ratio of a bit to multiple, you know, based on the tech category as an example. And cannabis stocks, maybe as an example, are trading at a different a bit to multiple. Real estate is very similar, except real estate is a very geographically focused. So you'll see the nuance washed across different geographic markets. So Toronto, one of the hottest office markets in the country, 
on the low end of a cap rate. So, you know, lower being lower rate of return means a higher price, obviously. So the low cap would be 4% and the highest sort of a 5.5% cap rate. Montreal being a 4.5% to 6% range. Vancouver, 3.25% to 4.25%. Calgary, 6% to 9%. So again, now we're starting to really see those those juicy rates of returns, especially when you start to account mm. for leverage. Edmonton, uh, 6.75 to a 9% cap rate market. Ottawa, 5.25% to about 7.25%. Winnipeg, 5.5% to 6.75%. Halifax, 6.5% to 8.25%. Victoria, 5% to 5.5%. And Waterloo, 5.75 all the way up to 7%. And those are urban, that's between class A and class B. We can get into the suburban, but obviously, you know, you're starting to see, you do see a bit of a greater return when you get out into the suburbs. COVID did change that a little bit, but I don't want to dive in too much on that. So, I mean, Calgary, Edmonton at nine caps, those are, those are, I mean, that's almost double what we're seeing in, in Toronto and, and Vancouver. I'm looking at the same, I'm looking at Dan's notes right now, and there's one little funny note that I want to point out, but I don't want to offend anyone in Winnipeg. So very quickly, commercial real estate is divided into class A, B, and C buildings. And and Dan's got a little note here beside downtown Winnipeg cap rates that Apparently, no class A exists. I, I probably so. meant to put class B, like, but there's no <laughs> distinction between the two separate categories. It is funny. That's oh, really, poor Winnipeg. Yeah, we'll, we'll just blame that on, on this, the primary source of data. If, you, if you're interested in, Someone, uh, in learning more about these cap rates, I would uh, highly recommend you check out the Collier's Cap Rate Report. It's great if you're a data a statistics individual to get an understanding for how different real estate markets perform. Someone go re- build a really nice building downtown. I Winnipeg, think that the, I th- well, I think it would maybe be more an indication that their office market is so small that they don't have Class B, right? Like, so the only there's only room for Class A. We're gonna give it to give that one to them. I actually quite like Winnipeg's downtown. So, <laughs> so yeah. So I think the the next question is like, what does a office real estate investment look like for that's accessible for the layperson, right? So I don't. Do you have an example? Because I have a couple, but you know, and, and I, I'm. I like searching realtor.ca just to look at random commercial stuff, but like you can go find an office condo, right? A single office condo for like half the price of a house in the same market. What do you mean office condo? Right. So basically like a condo building is cut up by, you know, you're basically buying the rights to own that unit. Let's say that's a maybe a, a bit of an oversimplification, but you're buying basically the exclusive rights to use that unit. And so that's your condominium unit, the same way it would be in a condo building for residential purposes, you get that for within an office use. So, you know, there's a centralization. The building itself is a, a centralization of a lot of the maintenance. So, you know, they have common area, they maintain all of the windows, the shell, the building envelope, and you basically just own that space inside. So is that is that when you're walking past a building and, there, and there's kind of the storefronts on the first floor, or like up in the podium, you know, there's there's a gym or yeah, there's whatever see, in there. And yeah, then- you'll often see a, a lot of those are structured just from a development simplicity perspective as commercial condominiums. That's a great, great insight, actually. So a lot of podium level space is commercial condo. So there's, you can see it in retail. Another good example would be, you know, in some of these suburbs where you see these, they almost look like stacked townhouse buildings, like these they would be built in in industrial areas, but they're mostly operated are occupied and operated by, you know, like real estate offices or gyms or whatever it is, right? You can see a lot of those and, and there's they're like flex spaces. That's what they're often marketed as. So, you know, you'll see 
a variety of different uses and they're kind of delineated by a party wall between them, almost like townhouses, right? You'll see they could be one level or not. You're, you're very more, more often seeing them two levels now. And in a lot of cases, the tenure structure of those is that they're condominium units. Okay, very cool. I honestly was not aware that that existed. Can we talk about a little bit about the loan to value structures? Because so I'm I'm a mortgage agent, and you know I I my partner deals in in commercial. I don't, so I I'm not privy to you know how, how the loan system works as much as I think you would be. So what kind of loan to value LTVs, loan to value? What kind of loan to value ratios are we getting? What and, and where are you finding this kind of financing? Yeah, so I, as an investor, I think the loan to value is it's going to be similar to what you would see in the residential side, right? You're going to see it float around that kind of 75% range. Where you start to see greater opportunity, and actually it's worth noting that the interest rate's often going to be more on the commercial side, but there's a ta- degree of tax deductibility to that. So it's worth really examining you know, if you're getting into real estate from a commercial perspective, first of all, it's subject to different taxes such as HST and things like that. But it's also you get input tax credits as well, right? Because you're running a business. And what you'll see a lot of people do, and and what I was using that example of that industrial park or those commercial condos is, you know, the it'll be owner occupied. And that's where you really start to get into your higher loan to value, more creative financing that really makes these compelling investments for entrepreneurs to build wealth. And you know, I, I we did a first take on on some of these quotes yesterday, and I recorded one and I posted it. And, and some individuals are saying, "Oh, you shouldn't be telling business people that levering up is the only way to build wealth and and real estate and whatever." And I'm not I'm not trying to imply that, but as a you know, a lot of businesses require hard assets. They require office space. They require maybe outdoor storage. They require a, a gym or whatever it is, right? Whatever your business is. And in a lot of cases, if you're leasing that space, that's a sunk cost, right? And you could be amortizing a loan at the same time. So to get back to the loan-to-value piece, the highest loan-to-value deal I've ever seen was a commercial owner-occupied deal. I think there's quite a few... I mean, the Business Development Bank of Canada, who you know, functionally exists almost similar to CMHC. They're regulated by their own act, uh, the Business Development Bank of Canada Act. Basically, their mandate is to support entrepreneurs. And one of the ways that they do that is with creative lending programs for entrepreneurs and for businesses to grow and to to grow their asset wealth, right? Or their balance sheet. And that allows them to, in a lot of cases, get loans at greater than 80% loan to value. I've seen as high as 100% and I've seen above 100% in a purchase plus improvement mortgage. So basically, they give you money to buy the place and money to do the capital improvements necessary to make it ready for your business. And you spend that money to make that asset a place for you to operate your business within. Yeah, I love that. Do we do we have anything else to uh, to cover in commercial? I think maybe what about what about trying to place tenants? Yeah. In commercial. Yeah, so this is where you really run into the issue, right? So I think, you know, if we go back to that Canada overview, so right now I'm referencing a document. It is the Collier's Canada overview for office and industrial or commercial and industrial. And, you know, again, we're looking at a a 12.9% vacancy rate nationally. I could go into some of these other markets, but let's just use that as a figure. If you base that number on if you annualize that number and you're owning one single unit, you're you're functionally assuming the risk that potentially one you could lose one month per year in rent, right? Or if there's 12 units or, or 10 units in your building, one of them is going to be vacant for an entire year, potentially, right? 
Um, so you have longer cycles to fill it. Like the absorption is slower. It takes longer for you to fill units, at least in the office space and the retail space as well. And so you and you have a higher higher degree of vacancy risk than you would with residential, right? On the flip side, you don't have as much risk of te- like tenancy risk associated with you know conflict that might arise between you and your tenant because it's a much more succinct business transaction and there isn't really a landlord and tenant board per se for commercial space. So your rights as a landlord are a lot more contractual and more business related. They're less qualitative, let's say. They're less up for debate in, in the court. Um, and so if, if there's a non-payment of rent because it's a business transaction, you know, you can basically lock the doors and, and keep materials, the existing materials and, and obstruct the tenant from... I mean, that's maybe a little bit hyperbolic or extreme, but you could functionally do that in a commercial situation. You obviously cannot do that <laughs> in a residential situation. So yeah, yeah. so that, that's probably the, the major difference that I think you know, it becomes difficult for you to, if you're buying a one-off unit, like we're mentioning, if you're buying a single commercial condo, it's a lot of risk, a lot of vacancy risk to eat, right? That's where, you know, if you're buying office, that's where the economies of scale really become an advantage, right? Because if you're a commercial landlord, you've now got 12 units. So you can afford for one of those units to be vacant, right? You can afford that risk when it's spread across the entire building. Yeah, totally. It's not, it's not like, you know, Shopify who's taking a million square feet is going to call Rio can when the toilet breaks, like my tenants call me, right. you know. And and <laughs> I, I will say like, it becomes a lot different. And I, I encourage and I work with a lot of businesses who do require brick and mortar to use their business as an opportunity for them to grow wealth through real estate, right? Um, so that's a very different situation. If you're your own tenant, right? Or if you're the owner occupier of your space, it's a very different situation. There are better tax implications. There's a lot more creativity towards it. You can start using money that you're spending to improve the space as input tax credits, right? And so, and, and you're and you're deferring an opportunity cost that you would have otherwise spent on renting, right? Making somebody else wealth. You know what I keep on thinking, and I might regret saying this because this is maybe too cliche, but I keep on thinking of the line from the founder, which is about Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's. Great movie. If you haven't seen a great business movie, BJ Novak, who plays Ryan in the office, goes up and he's like, you're in the wrong business. I'm going to butcher paraphrasing this, but you're in the wrong business. You need to be in the real estate business, not the hamburger business. And you know, now McDonald's is one of the largest. Are you looking yeah, to go it up oh, right yeah. now? Oh, yeah. I am. I got to see this. <laughs> I was trying to look it up earlier and I, I couldn't find it in time. So, but I, 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 you know, that's totally what I think, but I think, you know, that, that is a, you either have to find, you know, me personally right now, I would have to find um, partners, joint venture partners to try to take something like that on from a scale point at this point. It's a whole different beast, but I totally, I totally understand what you're saying. Do we want to talk a bit about smaller cap retail stuff where we're still under the commercial umbrella here? Yeah, I think retail, like, look, if you're talking across Canada the, geographically, like, you know, it does become accessible for somebody to maybe get a two, three unit strip mall, et cetera. Like, you know, a couple of partners and I were looking at at things like that in markets across the province of Ontario. I mean, hell, Edmund, Edmund, do it in Edmonton. Right, yeah. Or, 9%, do it in Edmonton. Right, yeah. I mean, the rates of return are great. You really got to know what you're doing. But, you know, there's some awesome follows uh, in the Twitter sphere, like Tripball Guy, Trent on uh, on Twitter, who who talks about these in, in the States, right? There are similar opportunities in, in Canada. You just really have to be more of a skilled operator. And that's why, like, typically I would advise people who have experience as tenants in the business who maybe, like, you know, that's why I usually usually recommend it for beginner investors 
to use it as a wealth building tool for people who are already in businesses that could potentially use that space, right? Maybe you get a mixed use where you know you're op- occupying the ground floor unit and you're getting rental yield from the three residential units up top or whatever. But it is hard to get to achieve the scale necessary to to mitigate some of that risk, like that vacancy risk, without like what you're describing, you know, being having a fund or co-investing with a bunch of buddies or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, retail, uh, I mean, put it this way. I was walking down Queen Street the other day, which apparently was just voted one of the best neighborhoods in the world by Vogue. I'm not a big Vogue reader myself, but I hear they're fairly reputable. My girlfriend and I were going to get all-you-can-eat sushi because, you know, I'm on a budget inflation. I can't afford the a la carte sushi, but uh, we were going to get sushi and, you know, Queen Street's beautiful. They've got everything you could imagine, but I swear there was a ton of of storefronts closed like beautiful storefronts closed so i mean unless you're hedging and you've got a storefront and as you said you know a couple other you know maybe a garage in the back that you're renting or a residential one or two units up top i you know the the retail stuff does worry me a little bit right now just from the tenancy point of view you know I, i did have a brick and mortar store for a business i had in the past and and you know that brick and mortar store did did well until we didn't need to do it and we realized it was just an expense and we moved it all online so Sorry to my retail guys out there. I There's a few guys I was just on a phone call with a couple of days ago that do very well in the retail space. So I just know it's volatile. Yeah. So personally, I would not recommend a novice investor jumping in and trying to buy a storefront as their first investment. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that there is opportunity. You can, again, you can find a lot of small cap deals in the commercial space that are going to to trade at much more compelling prices than residential in the same market but there's a reason for that and it's because it it's not you know it's not accessible to everyone and you know you have to be a skilled operator to in a lot of cases to really turn these things around even if they're small cap right in individual cases totally. yeah if you're buying a single unit and you already have a tenant or it's already turnkey and maybe you're buying it and they've already got a 5 plus 5 plus 5 lease in place and you you know you're confident that there's a good it's a good investment and it's stabilized. Yeah, maybe they don't come around often, but you can get pretty good deals in that respect. If you're an if you're an end user, again, I would I would highly recommend buying your retail space. Like if you you know if you run a cafe, if you run a brick and mortar shop, etc., you can get some super sexy high street properties in Toronto, outside of the core, obviously. But even even like in the downtown areas for relatively cheap prices when you're comparing them to residential nearby. I've literally seen high street properties with more residential square footage than nearby townhouses sell for significantly less money because they had a retail component and the retail component makes them more difficult for the layperson to finance. If you are a business person and you can go to and get access to some of these more non-traditional streams of, of finance, if you have good books that show that you know how to run a business, by all means, use that as an opportunity to start building assets, growing your business and building a real business, building some equity. I think that's a good, maybe yeah. a good segue to the industrial side, which we're seeing more you know, more and more of these small cap guys buying their own brick and mortar on the small, like small side and big. And the, you know, the wealthiest portfolio owner that I know, I think I mentioned this story, is a industrial, he's an industrial landlord, but he only operates one of his, I think he owns 20 something businesses or 20 something buildings. The cheapest building that he owns is 
$25 million valuation, I would say. And that's the one that he occupies. He ran a very large business in the industrial space in Canada. Gradually, the business started to get offshored over the years as globalization ramped up. So this guy, he'd been in the business since you know 50s or 60s. And time is probably the greatest asset after tenants uh, as a real estate investor. <laughs> well but said, he built yeah. up a lot of great industrial assets and now owns them and, and leases them out to other tenants. And he did that consistently by taking out money with you know security against the business and scaling up his operations. So you're starting to see this happen with a lot of these smaller businesses, mechanics, machinists, etc. And you're starting to see more and more commercial condominiums enter into the space, similar to the office structure that I was mentioning, you know, fireproof party wall between them. Industrial is very simple build, right? Just a lot of a concrete block, etc. And then, you know, you own the box that you're in and you have other individuals beside you. Let's get to the fundamentals on now, sorry, go ahead, Nick, jump in there. I was gonna say industrial has been on an absolute tear over the past couple of years. I know some good friends of mine that have a business where they require a lot of warehousing and their cost skyrocketed, their rent cost, they had to upgrade size halfway through the pandemic because their e com business was doing really well. And then I know a couple of the of the brokers down here, and man, these guys are crushing it on the on the industrial side. And the funny thing is, and anyone that doesn't hasn't spent time in the commercial real estate world wouldn't get this. But let me tell you, there's there's a hierarchy in the commercial real estate world, and the office brokers are always the sexy ones, and the commercial or sorry, and the in the industrial guys always get looked down upon. I've been to the parties, I've seen it. <laughs> And, and you know what? The tables have turned. How the turntables are turning. These guys are, are crushing it, going out and showing, you know, two, three million square feet in Mississauga. That's not, it's not as cool as, you know, the top penthouse floor of Scotiabank Plaza or, or any of the, you know, central business district, beautiful buildings. But, you know, it, it's, it's what the economy desired and it's what the consumers forced upon everybody. So it'll be interesting to see. The next little while, how when office seems to kind of slowly make its way back and maybe industrial starts to cool off and, and retail comes back. I think we're in a big flux period for, for all of those other asset classes. And let's get to the, you want to get to the takeaways here? Yeah. So, well, I just want to go to the overview on industrial. So, you know, I mean, the the industrial vacancy rate is, it, it, it's a great reflection of what you're saying. It's below 1%, right? So... Yeah. Wow. We didn't even plan that, guys. We didn't even plan that. Yeah. So it's 0.9% vacancy rate. And that's nationally, right? You've seen wow. that. You've seen that basically fall off from just below 2% in this time in 2021. So in a year, vacancies basically halved. There's a lot of demand for industrial space and, and prices are beginning to reflect that. If you look at you know, Q1 2021 nationally per square foot, rent was between 9 and 10 bucks a foot net. And now it's above uh, $11. Again, this is a national figure. So for all of the, those of you who are ta- thinking GTA or Greater Vancouver and saying, wow, that's a way off figure. Yeah, it is because it's national. I think you mean not thinking, hoping. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> yeah, but so so look, industrial end users, the, the one of the challenges here is as these rates start to climb, it becomes more and more compelling for end users to own their own space, right? And especially as you know, the interest rate environment is changing, more and more cases, the business case can be can be made for, you know, the input credits and the tax advantages for businesses to own space begin to make sense, right? And so you're seeing a lot of industrial end users, more so than I would say on the office and, and retail side, get into ownership of real estate. And there is another sort of fundamental reason for that, you know, 
when we talk about office and retail, there are more, let's call it density concepts, right? So where you see an aggregation of multiple commercial units, retail units, or or offices, you know, office towers or small office buildings, retail plazas. You don't see that as much in industrial, but you are starting to see, you know, there's a couple of business people that I know in the in the GTA and, and actually across the, the, the country. Ripple would be a good example. Um, shout out to Zach Rower, one of my buddies from Guelph. Uh, you know, he, he was dividing, kind of basically buying large industrial or excess industrial land and cutting it up into to industrial condos. You're seeing a lot of that stuff happen. One of the other developers that I work with as, a, as an LP basically said all he wants to develop now is contractor garages, he calls them. It's a concept that you're seeing in the States. It's almost like self-storage, but a little bit more advanced. So you get self-storage basically with electricity in it. And um, they're you know, roll-up doors, very simple. In a lot of cases, steel. Sometimes if you if you need concrete for fire suppression and basically you know, running small contractor operations, you're a little landscaper to park uh, you know, a couple of his bobcats and trailer and for safety, but it's in, in an urban, he wants it close to a highway in an urban area or whatever it is. A lot of really, really cool sort of light industrial uses evolving that, from my perspective, could create great opportunity for end users to build wealth. I would not recommend anybody investing in a single unit and leasing it out to a single tenant. If you're going to invest in any sort of commercial or industrial use, I think you start you need to get to that scale because there is too much vacancy risk for unless you're a skilled operator again. Yeah, I love I love that. I mean, it's great. I think you're right. I think industrial is a little bit easier accessible. There's less of a barrier to entry than there is on on trying to get into commercial. Now, while we're on this, you and I did touch on this briefly beforehand, and I wanted to personally see what you had to think about this. And I've had a lot, you know, some people reaching out about about a couple random, let's say, a bit more obscure asset classes. And I'm going to just do a quick take on this. And I think we've got some some good key takeaways for this episode here. So what is your opinion on, let's say, owning gas stations or self-storage car washes, let's say, mobile home parks? I know mobile home parks are huge in the States. There's obviously a lot less of them here, but some of those more obscure assets, you know, you drive past a gas station and you're like, man, that would be, you know, I just hire someone, the people pump their own gas. This is, this is easy, you know, self-storage, same thing, water or sorry, car washes, you know, it's just, it's just water. And you know, my clients are all cars. It's easy. People just drive through. I sit at home. It's super passive. Is that the case with these more obscure kind of interesting asset classes in real yeah, estate? Yeah, I, I would argue that no real estate is is passive, right? I don't think that there's a single asset class in the real estate space that is passive. As a landlord, yeah, it's a little bit different. But when you're talking about things like self-storage, when you're talking about gas stations, like those are those are SMBs. They're small to medium businesses. Those aren't really assets, right? So you're yeah, sure. And, and you know, you and I had this discussion when you and an investor wanted to get into short-term rentals as an example, right? To me, it's like... And and in a lot of cases, I would say, yeah, that maybe that makes sense because if you're going to be running a relationship business anyways as a landlord, you might as well do it in the highest yield that you can possibly get. And I would agree with that, right? But something like a gas station or a car wash, you know, these are operator businesses, right? They're not passive income investments. So... I don't think about them so much as the as a real estate element. Yeah, maybe if you're owning a restaurant pad site that's triple net as an example and you know the the tenant is basically paying all of the taxes, maintenance and insurance and you don't have to do anything. Um you see this every now and then with oil change places like I think Speedy is one of them, right? There's a couple of or Mr. Lube is another one. A lot of triple net tenants across the country. 
landlords love them, but those assets that you're talking about aren't they don't really fit that that mold from my perspective. They're, I would say you're probably well. First of all, they're they're extremely inaccessible for most people, but you really got to have a, a good scope of knowledge t- to get into assets like that. And on you know, it could could be things as much as you know in the car wash and, and gas station side of things. Even talking about you know n- knowledge of environmentals and stuff like that, right? As well as different trade agreements, for sure. et cetera. So a little definitely more nuanced, not stuff that that we can advise. I mean, not that this is advice, but not things that you can talk broadly about on. Uh, I mean, I'd love to to have those discussions with with people who are doing well in those spaces, but but more challenging in, investments for sure. Yeah, anyone out there own gas stations or or multiple car washes, we would love to uh, to talk to you. And and just a little clarification on that story: yeah, I, an investor and I, an investor client of actually both Dan and I. Had this great idea. I don't even want to tell everyone right now because it's. I still want to do it, but you're right. So, anyways, I, I'm. I have a bit of a Swedish and Finnish background in me. I'm the other side's Italian, but I've been growing up taking saunas the whole time. I wanted to get this beautiful place by the water and have a sauna and kind of make it turn the whole thing into a spa experience, but. I don't have any short-term rentals right now. And the way that we were talking about, I got all excited. I told Dan, he's like, okay, cool. So you're, you're starting a business. I'm like, no, no, no. It's just, it's a, it's another real estate asset. And he's like, no, it's a business. And, you know, very quickly you realize that you really got to figure out how heavily you want to be involved in what a de- what essentially is tenant turnover in short-term rentals, which really quickly becomes a business, which is Actually, a great segue into some of my key takeaways from this episode, if you're ready to go yeah, there. for sure. Okay, so basically, you know, we, we analyzed all these different asset classes. My personal key takeaway, because, you know, I've spent a little bit of time analyzing and, and watching these transactions happen. I don't own that stuff. I own duplexes. And, you know, the tenants, I've said this before, I'll say it again, and tenants are the real asset, right? And I don't have trouble like I don't have vacancy. Like I really don't. You know what I mean? I have vacancy if I if I'm lazy and can't get someone in there because I still self-manage some of my stuff. I only have vacancy because I'm very, very picky and I'll wait two months to find the right person. But that's that's vacancy that I chose. I mean, you can generate the other key takeaway is you can generate the same return off of all asset classes on a scale, right? So if I'm generating a four cap and that four cap or five cap is, you know, a thousand bucks or fifteen hundred bucks, that four or five cap could be fifteen thousand dollars, twenty five thousand dollars on a much larger scale, and then it really just depends on what you and or your partners are comfortable with doing and where you can find deals, what your skill sets are. You know, maybe you are a handyman or a handy woman, and you can find a great deal and go fix it up yourself and do a bit of a burn method, which we'll get into in a later episode. But, you know, or maybe, maybe there is a rundown car wash in, in your, in your town and you can go and, and try to do a vendor take back another thing we'll get into. But, stay in your lane you know don't try to don't see a big building or 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 get carried away with with you know big ideas real estate is it has to be simple and if you're here to get rich quick you're in the wrong place all of this stuff takes time so those are my key takeaways dan what do you got yeah mine are pretty similar i think the you know the real benefits of investing in commercial real estate versus residential real estate are you know it's simpler credit and an easier product to understand for the average person again i think about real estate investing as an input and output business right so it's a lot easier for the layperson to understand the inputs and outputs of a residential home than a retail unit an industrial unit an office unit or you know vacant land or a farm 
per se. <laughs> it's definitely less personal on the landlord side. So it doesn't require as thick of skin. You're not evicting people and, you know, contributing to the homeless issue as some people, you know, might in extreme cases be fearful of. You know, it's a business transaction. And, uh, and I, I would say, you know, it has required thicker skin during COVID because a lot of businesses are being, you know, victimized by, by economic challenges. Yeah. And, and so I think that's changed that a little bit. And owning commercial real estate is, from my perspective, you know, for the entry level investor, it's it's more advantageous for people who are already running businesses and interested in using those businesses to build asset wealth. You know, basically servicing a mortgage, maybe using their business input, their need for space as a way, as a savings vehicle or a way to create wealth, rather than just a line item where that is rent being paid to somebody else. So I would encourage a lot. I, I think that's really the big takeaway for me is this is a great investment opportunity, a great opportunity to access unique types of credit that a lot of individuals don't really know about. And to sort of transcend what a lot of people are running businesses as in you know most late, late cycle capitalistic economies, which is you know zombie companies or lifestyle businesses, depending on the term that you prefer to use. Basically, a business that you use to fund your lifestyle, right? Real estate realtors are the best example of a lifestyle business, right? They will die with no equity ever created in the business that they made, right? And I think that commercial real estate presents a real opportunity for entrepreneurs to build equity in a hard asset. And I believe that that's why businesses should exist. So that to me is the greatest opportunity in, in real estate investing for the for the entry level investor in commercial real estate. Boom. You heard it here first. Okay. That's probably it for today. I just want to say thank you one more time to everybody. Go like, subscribe, blah, 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 all that good stuff. You know how you know how it is. You know where to find it. Spotify, Apple Music, leave us a review. And if you're looking Dan, yeah, if you're looking for assets of this type, um, just send me or Nick a DM on the platform if you're choosing. We're not exceptionally hard to find. And just ask us sort of what we're talking about, if we can send you some examples of the type of product that we're referencing in this. And and Nick can also maybe kind of send you to web pages of different lenders who have programs for this type of stuff. You know, because we're happy to help out. Like our goal here is really to share knowledge and to connect with our viewers. So just send us a message. We're usually pretty responsive unless we get a massive inundation of messages if we said something wrong or made an incorrect comment and our DMs are blowing up, but <laughs> uh, hasn't happened yet. So thank you. I, I really appreciate all the support so far. This has been a great episode and I look forward to many more. See you next time. The Canadian Real Estate Investor is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.